WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Out there radio. My name is Joe McFall. And I'm Raymond Wiley. And I got to say, we're, we're real excited tonight. We're, this is a show, uh, this particular episode that we're doing right now. It's been a long time in the making. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited. This is our 40th episode tonight. Oh, so, yeah. But if you're just tuning into us for the first time out there, uh, as you may have heard on the intro, is our weekly show about the occult and conspiracy theories and just sort of strange. Fordian type stuff. Wouldn't you say so, Joe? Oh, yeah, yeah. And this week, like no other, because this is the episode that you've been waiting for probably your entire lives, or maybe at least the last year and a half since we've been talking about it. It's the zany occult Nazis episode. That's right. Those those crazy, <laughs> crazy occult Nazis. Yeah. And just when you thought that what you saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark and all those other films was, and he- Hellboy, another one, just when you thought all of that was a, a big fictionalization of history... Man, I'm gonna, we're going to throw some stuff at you tonight that is so far beyond what you've seen in films and sort of fictionalized versions that you're not even, you're going to be like, the truth is stranger than fiction. You're going to realize that by the end of the night tonight because, uh, I don't know, Joe, we've talked about the occult a lot on the show. Okay, we've talked about magic and esoteric movements and, and you know, all this sort of, this sort of stuff. And... We usually cast it in a pretty good light, you know. Uh, we even we were even nice to the head of the Church of Satan, you know. <laughs> I mean, we thought they were even kind of okay. Yeah, but, nice guy. But what we are going to talk about tonight, it's the occult gone bad. Oh, yes. That's right. And don't expect any Castle Wolfenstein type stuff. Or... Maybe you should, in fact. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. know. I should have mined out some uh, <laughs> some audio some audio clips from the famous <laughs> video game Wolfenstein. So now, on this episode, we're going to tell you about the occult history of National Socialism, and maybe even tell you where the blood flag is. That's right, yeah. the, the infamous blood flag. But we'll get back to that. Yeah. We'll get back to that later on. So before we get started on what may I don't know if if we're even going to get through all this material tonight. I'm going to go ahead and throw that out there that this may end up being a two-parter, but. We're just going to sort of see what happens. But before we get to all that stuff, um, I know, Joe, you and our special recurring guest, Austin Gandy, both have some some tip-top out-there news segments. Should we refer to Austin as a recurring guest or recurring character? Let's get this straight right now. I'm interested. He is sort of a character. Well, he is. I agree. He does recur. You recur a lot, <laughs> yeah. in fact. Yeah. So, But, you know, I was thinking about it the other day. What's the difference between... Having Austin on five minutes on like 20 shows or having him on for a whole episode, you get to sort of spread the coolness around. That's right. (laughs) Do you want to go first, Austin? Yeah, why don't you come on and step on to the plate, my friend? Ladies and gentlemen, Austin Gandy. Thank you for having me back. Welcome, welcome. All right. There's something I actually want to, you know, throw out in terms of uh, the the potential of uh, occult movements and, and spirituality in general to take a turn for the darker and we can uh, we can hopefully uh, discuss whether uh, whether what we're seeing in this news uh, in this news piece I've dredged up is 
perhaps the makings of another uh, terrifying situation. Right here we've got Pastor Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda, known as Daddy to his followers. Um, this man's in Miami, Florida. He's 61. He grew up in Puerto Rico. He's, he's a pastor unlike many others. Now this man, uh, the, the first thing you might notice about him is the 666 tattoo on his arm. This is not even nearly the strangest thing about this man. His, uh, his church, known as Creciendo en Gracia, uh, was founded around 20 years ago, actually. So this guy isn't new on the scene. He makes some interesting claims. One among them being uh, that, the, that, quote, The spirit that is in me is the same spirit that was in Jesus of Nazareth. This man doesn't claim to represent or stand for God, but rather that he is God. He goes further, though, and it, when asked about the 666 tattoo that he and 30 of his followers sport, explains that the, t the number 666 represents his status as the Antichrist. But the Antichrist, like himself, or rather because he is the Antichrist, is a very misunderstood figure. The Antichrist is not Satan. It is instead the being who comes after Jesus, the being who replaces Jesus on earth, which of course is Pastor Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. Now yeah, there's or daddy, as we like or to call daddy. Him. Professor Daniel Alvarez, a religion expert at the Florida International University, has some 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 differing thoughts about this uh, this interesting pastor. Um, he claims that he's quote. In their heads, he's in he's inside the heads of those people, and makes uh, comparisons to David Koresh or Jim Jones, um, which perhaps uh, not the best comparisons, but understandable um, given that uh, Martita Roca, a follower, uh, getting uh, her her six 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 tattoo on her ankle, was quoted as saying. You know, while if somebody tells us, drink some Kool-Aid and we'll go to heaven, that's not true. We're already in heavenly places. Certain tenets of the church reflect this idea that they are already in heaven. De Jesus preaches that there is no devil and there is no sin. His followers, he says, literally can do no wrong in God's eyes. And they've demonstrated this philosophy in a variety of interesting ways, including protesting Christian churches in Miami and Latin America disrupting services and smashing crosses and statues of Jesus. Which is ultimately what I want to come to. This man deserves two things. One, major props for bringing metal back into the cult scene. It's, it's, it's rare that you can see a man who presents himself so uh, unabashedly hardcore. Often you have to delve through layers of fluffy white lightness and ascended beings from other galaxies coming to take us away before you start to smell impending doom coming. This guy has it tattooed on his forearm. But that's the other thing I want to talk about. Now adepts throughout the centuries have recognized that founding a religious order for the acquisition of worldly, which this man does have worldly power, $136,000 a year salary just to begin with, and also spiritual power. This is, this is recognized as a useful technique, but this is just tacky. And I think everybody in the, in the Invisible College and outside it can recognize this fact. That this man is going to have to be watched because, like Ozzy Osbourne, there comes a time when you, you, you find yourself on stage chewing the heads off of bats and snorting lines of fire ants because you don't know how to top yourself anymore. 
this man needs to be watched for the very same reason. There's going to come a time where just getting a 666 tattoo and riding around in armored Lexuses is not enough for him. So I wanted to throw that out for the, uh, the community at large. Keep your eyes on Pastor 666. We should get him on the show. Absolutely. We should get him on yeah. the show. That would be really That'd good. Be awesome. That would be uh, a, a nice trip. Anyway, so Joe, I think you've got some uh, yeah. some stuff along sort of the same lines, really. This is, this is actually an interesting story that's uh, actually spreading wi- like wildfire. Right. This whole lost tomb of Jesus thing. So James Cameron, the director of Titanic, is part of this documentary that's going to be broadcast in Discovery Channel on March 4th the discovery of this Talpiot tomb. And evidently, um, there are some inscriptions on these, on these ossuaries that imply that the, the bodies, or rather the remains in these ossuaries, belong to Jesus and his family, including his brother, his mother, his wife, and his son. Wait a minute, Joe. Wait a yeah. minute. Wait a minute. You saw Passion of the Christ. I saw Passion uh, of the Christ. No, I didn't. I wouldn't pay money for Oh, that. yeah, I Garbage. saw it. I saw it, and I didn't see Sorry. any wife of Jesus well, in yeah. that film. Okay, but did you see The Last Temptation of Christ? Hey, I don't want to hear about your <laughs> Martin Scorsese heresy on this show, okay? Ev- evidently, <laughs> nobody wants to hear about this kind of heresy either, because there's, ar- there's already giant uproar about this whole thing. And, you know, first of all, it's just a documentary, and it's... Probably not, like, true. Look, it's just spreading that Cathar heresy. Yeah, I would say it's not true because, as we all know, Jesus Christ never existed. So, (laughs) I mean, come on. (laughs) Didn't you listen to the uh, Brian Fleming episode of Out There Radio? You should have been primed for this already. No, Joe, that's your opinion, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks. (laughs) I'm not going to say... What I want to say? No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Say it. no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. So, uh, but I will. I will give you a little anecdote that my roommate told me because he, yeah, he was flipping through channels and the way he heard about this Discovery Channel special was that well he wakes up and he's watching this news segment which he thinks is this normal news segment. Turns out it's a 700 Club <laughs> <laughs> news segment, and uh, you know it's all about this story and or whatever. I think why they have all these like college professors on that are all like completely saying it's bunk and discounting it. And then at the end, you know, the reporter on the story is like, um, what do you think about this, Pat? And it pans over to Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson goes, well, my friend, some people will just believe anything. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Uh, Ed, Ed, our producer, and I were talking about this actually before the show. People will believe anything. They'll it's, believe anything. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So, uh, like... This is actually... Like space lizards. They'll yeah. believe in that. DC-8s flying from other galaxies. They'll believe in that. Mm-hmm. And the philosophy of, like, racial purity. Yes. They'll and believe that, in that. that <laughs> that's actually what got Ed and I on the conversation, was the whole topic of the show tonight, which we'll get to in a second. We've got a, a little a little more news, but okay. um, but really, that's, that's, the, that's what Ed and I were, were saying, that, you know... What happened with the Nazis, we'll get to this, but I mean, it's, it's just a matter largely of gullibility, right. I mean, right. to some extent. And, a, and an inner need. Yeah. We'll talk about that in yeah. a minute, though. So what else you got on the out there news for this evening, my friend? This is just a little a little shift gears here, some more DARPA news. We talk about DARPA every now and then, so this stuff is kind of fun. There's actually uh, this great interview with the DARPA chief, Tony Tether, in a recent issue of Wired. Uh, this is from the March issue of Wired. And it talks to him a lot about what DARPA has been up to, what they've got planned, the kinds of things they're doing. 
So just a few things that uh, Tony Tether was talking about. Um, they have this little thing called a wasp, which is a very quiet, very efficient electrical flying machine. There's, there's actually evidently about 200 of them in use in Iraq right now. Um, the idea is that this little wasp has sensors on it and a comlink and GPS, and soldiers can, can use it to sort of see what's, not, what's a few blocks away from them, right? So rather than like satellite photos showing battlefields or whatever, this is like urban warfare stuff. They had this little wasp that they say, oh, well, send, send out the wasp. It flies around the corner, see what's going on, you know, and reports back to them or something. So they're also, the more interesting part of this article I thought was um, when Tether is talking about DARPA's cognitive program, which is their pro basically their artificial intelligence program. And one of the one of the quotes here is where he says, "We're on the verge of having computers with densities approaching a monkey's brain, and it won't be long before we'll have a computer with a density of transistors or equivalent to neurons and almost human. What we're missing is the architecture." And so, so there's DARPA saying that pretty soon they're going to have real thinking computers, which I found I find you know, fascinating considering the field I'm in. But you know. So do you think uh, this is uh, you know the birth of some Terminator-style scenario where the machines take over? What do you think? Well, it's not surprising that it's DARPA that's coming up with this. You know, they're funding it. It's through Stanford, actually. Um, so you know, we are interesting. We are living in interesting times. That's for sure. And we're going to see a lot of technological change, technological changes in the next five years or so that we've never seen before in human history. Right, and of course, the U.S. military and their giant free ride mm -hmm. that they get from the taxpayers every year will fuel this, just like it fueled the Internet, strangely yeah. enough. Yeah. So let's just hope that, just like the Internet, the turnaround time is really quick on going from military to civilian application of technology. Well, so. let's not forget that DARPA's big publicity event is the DARPA Grand Challenge, which is their autonomous robots thing, basically. And they'll, they've done this, I think, three years in a row now. And the latest one is an urban challenge. The grand prize is like $2 million to a winner, a million dollars to second place, where they have like literally autonomous vehicles, you know, driving around on some course with no drivers, mm. right? So one thing that, that's interesting is you integrate that in with the whole idea of artificial intelligence or cognitive computing, where you have autonomous mobile robots that think and learn. And DARPA is talking about this being, you know, just a few years away. So... Yeah. But, uh, you know, just a disclaimer here, when we say think and learn, we're not talking about, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, cyborgs here. At least not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But, I mean, really, when it comes to, you know, the implementation of something like that, because on, on the one hand, you know, t the Terminator 1, Schwarzenegger is a robot. He's not a cyborg. He's not half man, half robot. Like, he's a robot, right? And he's an autonomous robot, and he's a thinking robot, and he's a learning robot, he's an intelligent robot. And these are things that many would say that we are on the cusp of, that we will see within our lifetimes. So, anyway, <laughs> the one, actually, final thoughts? Well, actually, one other interesting DARPA uh, article I ran across while I was looking at this, they, they're coming up with this ultrasonic cloaking device, which is sort of uh, tangential to what we were just talking about, but also very interesting. The idea being that... Um, didn't we sign a treaty, like, so that we can't use cloaking devices, like, at the end of the last Romulan War or something? <laughs> You're looking at the picture. <laughs> yeah. the, well, this is uh, evidently just uh, an acoustic cloaking device. The idea being that it could reduce uh, noise levels in U.S. equipment by 30 decibels or so, giving them, like, the, obviously, like, uh, advantage 
an audio advantage anyway. So like they're, you know, uh, our war machines can sneak up on unsuspecting women and children before they blast them <laughs> to, <laughs> to hell. You know? uh, yeah, that's a good way. That's a good way of putting it, Joe. I like that. I like that. So yeah, it's, I'm, glad, I'm glad you've learned something about American foreign policy. I'm glad you've learned something. So, yeah, so. speaking of tyrannical foreign <laughs> policy, let's talk about the Nazis. Nice segue. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, we're not even going to go to a break. We've got so much to do. We'll take a break in a little while. I'm going to get. I want to sort of dive on into. Let's this do it, man. Because this is one of the most interesting shows right. that we've done. Exactly. Well, yeah. let's hope so. <laughs> let's hope so. Right. So, right. certainly some of the most interesting research that I've ever come across, and really hooked gets the hook in you because it goes way deeper than you think and you know you go into the research thinking oh there's rumors of the nazis being involved with the occult there's rumors of you know uh, magic and esoteric type movements having an influence but it's it's hard to prove no it's not hard to prove it's it's right there in front of your face and that's what we're going to get into tonight so a lot of research has been done on this topic and especially in the past 20 years especially in the last 20 minutes right <laughs> <laughs> the last 10 hours you know whatever but uh, i want to start off with a with a quote from uh, the, from the man himself adolf hitler <laughs> he says those who see a national socialism nothing more than a political movement no scarcely anything of it it is even more than a religion it is the will to create a new mankind. I think people this day and age looking back on history, especially with the focus we have on World War II, you know, in the popular culture right now, I think people miss this point that he, that even he makes about his own movement here, about his own uh, party. And that's that there is a religious side to the rise of fascism in Germany and to the rise of the uh, Nazis, you know, the, the, the most infamous bad guys apparently in all of history, you know, as, at least as far as it stands right now. And um, what this really for me is a story of, like I said earlier, is occultism gone bad. You know, you have so many occultists, so many people who believe in magic and a new age outlook who are... Um, they're looking to make the world a better place, and uh, you know they're kind of sometimes they're kind of uh, half-hearted in it. Sometimes they make real gains forward, but it's rare that you see this colossal blunder of like all your good intentions going completely awry and a total loss of compassion, which is sort of what happened. So let's let's get into this. Let's start off with the Industrial Revolution because I I think that's where this whole story begins and this whole this whole section of history that comes out of the late 19th century, all this occult stuff. We talked about it before with the Golden Dawn. Tonight we're going to sort of go across the channel and talk about what happened uh, on the continent. So, Industrial Revolution comes along and just changes everything in Europe as far as the life of your average Joe citizen. Millions of people moving off the farms into the cities, crowded in you know tenements, working in horrible factories, and for the people there, not only the people stuck in these factories, the people living in poverty in the, in the countryside, and the, uh, the aristocracy has been there for hundreds of years, it shakes everybody up, and nobody knows quite how to deal with it. Darwin comes along and just blows everybody's religious you know, views right out of the water, especially if they're highly educated, because you know, the educated classes and the scientific classes sort of all took Darwin uh, for gospel in a lot of ways, especially in the 19th century. 
And so everybody in Europe, especially those who are educated, are left with a spiritual crisis. They have this hugely strong tradition of Christian religion and, uh, you know, culture going back. And they're suddenly left with, what am I going to do now? You know, this is, we've sort of come to a bad end with all of this. Everything sort of seems meaningless. And now I'm living in this society that, well, sucks. You know, I'll just put it to you that way. Joe, I mean, could you muse for a second on some other ways this manifests itself in, uh, in different parts of Europe and in the West at this time, besides this Nazism we're going to talk about? Um, I mean, we talked about the Western occult movements in England, but, I mean, there are much... Uh, are you talking about indu how industrialism manifests yeah, itself? Yeah, yeah. Not, not how it manifests itself, but how, like, the spiritual reaction yeah. to industrialization manifests itself. Like spiritualism, for yeah, example. Yeah, so that was you know, so that was, so spiritualism ended up being uh, gaining more popularity in the late 1800s yes. and as well as the early 1900s, and we see uh, during that time a resurgence of something along the lines of paganism right. um, in many places, not only in Europe but also in the United States to some extent. Right, and and paganism is a very loose term here. It's it's certainly an attempt to reconstruct old religious practices you know we've talked like I said we've talked about this with the Golden Dawn they're going back to this Egyptian root thing uh, and uh, you've got people like Gardner doing the Wicca thing well in Germany this takes its sort of own form before we get to Germany let's let's back up a second and talk about Blavatsky well yeah. just one thing real quick is that what what this resurgence in spirituality in many ways was was a sort of nostalgia Yes. Um, which is a very a very interesting way to look at it because what we have are groups or societies popping up here and there that uh, had some degree I mean they they weren't necessarily forward looking as much as they were backward looking to some uh, mythical golden age right because the reality in the city whether you were rich or poor was not what you wanted this was not where you wanted to be I don't want to be in Vienna in 1905 especially if you're a racist, you know, and a lot of these people are imbued with a certain racism. And, uh, but, the, but it didn't, the racial focus of their spiritual beliefs did not start off from a quote-unquote racist background. It started off, well, we've talked about theo a theosophy before on this show. The, the uh, theosophical movement started by Madame Helena Blavatsky in the mid to late 1800s. She was a Russian mystic. And she basically borrowed or stole a lot of uh, Hindu sort of mysticism, mixed it together with a lot of the occultism that was already floating around, and the spiritualism that we were just talking about, with mediums and seances and this sort of thing. Blends them all together into a cult, sect, whatever you want to call it, this theosophical society. They're interesting because they're like a magical lodge, but as we said in a previous episode, they have co-ed membership. So that was sort of groundbreaking about them. And they were very popular throughout the world. Well, Blavatsky uh, had this concept of reincarnation, that the, the soul progresses through long periods of history and that humankind sort of does the same thing. She had a very similar concept to if you've ever read Hesiod or the ancient Greek myths about the golden age of man or the five ages of man. She had a very similar idea in her sort of occult history of the past, and that was that that mankind goes through seven what she called root races as it spiritually evolves through the centuries and she sort of writes this sort of mythic 
interpretation of like how those root races progressed and you know you get all this Lemurian stuff and this Atlantean Hyperborean. stuff Hyperboreans okay well for her the the latest of these root races are Aryans okay and I think for her a lot like their bloodline was is sort of lost and diluted she even sort of points to that she's not explicitly a racist at all um, but so she says, I think, in her work that the Aryans end up in the Himalayas after the great fall of their society or something like that. They later went on to settle in northern Europe and became the Nordic peoples or whatever. So her ideas about root races, about the idea of sort of blood purity that's passed down, and the idea of this hidden elect, because remember she had this idea that she was getting messages directly from the hidden chiefs or whatever. Okay, well, uh, that all of these ideas get passed into Germany. You know, we talked in the Golden Dawn episode about how these ideas got passed to England. Well, now we're going to talk about how they got passed into the continent. And the main figure that we're going to talk about tonight that picks up the ideas of theosophy and brings them into the German world is Guido von List. Look, let's look at Guido von List as like one of the granddaddies of Nazism. Okay, this guy was interesting mystic and occultist, but very concentrated on the idea of race and this ancient, like, Germanic Teutonic tradition. He was the guy that brought uh, the idea of occult meanings for ancient runes into popularity. Um, before him, people weren't really casting runes for mystic purposes they weren't wearing them as talismans or sigils like he brought that out and what he did was he was sort of a i don't know like an early cultural anthropologist in a weird kind of way he 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 tried to reconstruct what this ancient mythic teutonic tradition was and uh, he used ancient heraldry he would look at old heraldic designs and try to interpret some sort of occult meaning out of them, even though there probably wasn't one uh, originally. Well, you know? he, he believed in, literally, in the magic power of runes. Yes, he believed right. that runes had some magic power yeah. for divination or in, in the way a talisman does. But more than anything, he believed in the magic power of Aryan, of his Aryan blood or of this pure race from the past, um, this root race. So he picked that up directly from Blavatsky, okay? And he interprets this through his own hyper-nationalistic Germanic outlook, okay? And he uh, coins the term Ariosophy as sort of his study of ancient Aryan man. And he, uh, he you know, like, I don't know, we've, we've talked about, I don't, we haven't talked about Wicca very much on this show, but... Um, you, if you study Wicca, you'll notice that a lot of the different traditions in Wicca are, sort of have tenuous roots. You can't really tell how far back they go or how much creative license people were taking when they were writing these supposed ancient rituals. Same thing with List. You can't really tell how... It would seem that most of this he's sort of creating out of thin air. But he believed that in ancient times, in the Middle Ages especially in Germany, that there was this Armannenschaft, this class of, of judges, priest judges, priest kings. I don't know what the best thing, way to call it is, but supposedly they ruled the ancient feudal German world, uh, you know, with peace and, you know, a steady hand. And they're like medieval Ku Klux Klansmen, basically. Or, or, you know, the, the sort of mythic southern 
you know, uh, the way that Southerners sort of justified the Klan is the same way that, you know, List is sort of justifying this ancient Armanen shaft, you know, and doubtful that these people ever actually existed. But he's saying, hey, this is, the mo- this is the perfect model for a state, and we've got to just shut this Industrial Revolution stuff down, and we've got to go back. We've got to reconstruct the past. And this is what the past looks like. Magical runes and a class of warrior priest kings that look like Teutonic knights. In, in addition to that, he considered uh, the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church to be a sort of uh, occupation of Germany in many ways. So not only did, you know, did, uh, did this sort of, this mythos, this pantheon of, you know, German uh, king, priest, god, judge guys, right. not only did, did they represent something that invoked uh, some degree of, uh, you know, nationalism or ethnic pride am- among Germans, but also um, was set up in opposition to the current um, religious atmosphere of, of Europe at the time. Right. And you have to also think that somebody like List doesn't like democracy okay you know he wants he basically wants to get all of the non-Aryans whatever out of the way okay and of course if if he's looking back to this ancient German past what who are the Teutons always fighting they're always fighting the people directly to the east of them so he inherits this sort of like ancient hatred for uh, Slavic peoples especially so that gets sort of mixed in he hates Jews as well course it plays into this whole racial ideology so you can see how he's a grandfather and and we'll 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 go on down the family tree here what else do we have here about we have a couple more things about list actually he was very fond of this sort of prophetic passage about a strong man from above an Aryan messiah that would one day come and rescue Germany, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but he, they referred to it as the strong man from above. And that'll become important later. But he was constantly talking about this and looking for this sort of coming dawning of this utopian German empire. <laughs> In his later years, uh, many he, a lot of people f- sort of grew up around his work and, and began sort of following him, doing the runes and such. And they formed uh, different groups, Guido von List Society was one of them, and then also the Germanen Orden, the Order of Germany, and they were they were I mean they took the they went from his sort of theory into becoming like a working group that was actively trying to um, bring about you know the re the reassertion of this priest king class. They had twelve people that sat in their councils and such, and they had different lodges all over the countryside. Germanen Orden, the German Order. That's sort of what grows out of List. That's the group that grows up out of List's researches and his musings. So it's it's really hard to imagine something like this happening now in our culture in many ways, and that what that is the the resurgence of some sort of uh, pagan traditions or even uh, you know the invention of traditions that weren't there before. Um, it, it's I mean it's not hard to imagine that happening, but it's hard to imagine that happening to to the extent that it um, spreads like a virus throughout the populace. Right. You know? Well, what, you ha- what we have to remember here is that, you know, us lowly, lower middle class type folk, we have access to information in a way that a factory worker in turn of the century Vienna, for example, never would, okay? So the only people that are even going to get a hold of this information back then 
are going to be the educated classes. So most of the people in this Germanen Orden, these people dedicated to bringing about this new Aryan utopian future, blah, 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 okay, who are all using these occult symbols and the swastika, which they, which they borrow from Blavatsky, and which Blavatsky borrows from, you know, the Hindus, basically. You know, all of uh, all of these people are like doctors and lawyers. They're like the upper class of German society. And that's what's scariest about it is, uh, you know, I don't know. We have this sort of view of New Agers in our head, like your typical crazy New Ager, crazy New Ager, quote unquote. But you have this sort of view of them in your head of not this person who's got their stuff together very well. But these people... That's what's scariest about them, is they're getting up and going to work every day and making a bunch of money and living professional white-collar lives and <laughs> going home at night to the, to the frickin' lodge of, uh, of German-Aryan domination or whatever. And that's, that's kind of freaky. I mean, imagine, like, all the doctors and lawyers in town are suddenly fascists, you know? And, and to a large part, they're funding groups like the Von Liszt Society and some of the other groups. I mean, you know, th these groups aren't just uh, a, you know, a random cavalcade of people who... You know, they're not grassroots. Exactly, yeah. They're yeah. being funded by wealthy people. So that's, that's something else that, since it's, it's as if the aristocracy became infected first. It wasn't a bottom-up process. No, no, because, I mean, think about it. Who wants, who wants to stop this slide towards the future more than anybody else? It's the landed gentry. It's the the upper class in Europe who are looking back to the good old days, okay? And uh, so, of course, the idea of reconstructing this pagan past is appealing to them, especially since a lot of them are tired of the church, anyway, like you were talking about. So, speaking of alternatives to the church or ideals that came along and sort of brushed the church or brushed Christianity aside, let's talk about Darwin for a minute. Darwin's a big influence, though he's not a cult at all on this whole process, but we've got to imagine what I've just described to you and these beliefs that Guido von Liszt had, sort of combining in an atmosphere where the ideas of Darwinism, survival of the fittest, um, social Darwinism are floating around. Um, and also there's a medical and scientific obsession at this time with race going on and with the idea of racial hygiene or eugenics. Um, Joe, I mean, have you studied much about this, the whole eugenics movement? Did you, I mean, are you familiar well, with... It, was, it wasn't just a German thing, obviously. I mean, and we may have talked about this at some point on our show, but eugenics was, in many ways, a movement that was happening throughout Western culture. Both right. in started in the UK. Yeah, it started in the UK, and it was actually implemented in the United States in, in many states. Many states in the U.S. had eugenics programs. Right. Sterilization of the mentally ill, the mentally handicapped, sometimes just people because they were poor right. or black. Alcoholics. Alcoholics. Right. Sometimes children being euthanized mm -hmm. at very young ages and the doctors, you know, having, having some warped sense of duty that they did it for the good of mankind and they'd tell the, the, the parents, oh, that he died of natural causes, whatever. So this was going on all over U.S., U.K., and Germany, this idea of racial hygiene, that uh, you had to be very selective about who bred, and that there had to be all these laws about who could marry who, and who could uh, even have sex with who. Okay, of course, we'll get to it later how the, when the Nazis came to, actually came to power, they just took that all the way to the end of the line, you know what I'm saying? And we'll, we'll get to that more later, but... 
So this whole eugenics idea is floating around, and then you have one key figure, intellectual figure, comes out of this whole movement that I want to talk about, and that's Houston Stuart Chamberlain. He's an Englishman, and he writes a book called The Foundations of the 19th Century. And he basically, in his book, Foundations of the 19th Century, uh, says that the key deciding factor in the progress and the history of Europe in the past hundred years has been race, the rise and fall of different races. He was held in very high esteem, actually, by Kaiser Wilhelm II, you know, the German leader during World War I, the head of state. You know. He read his book and was into it, and I think he had also had a publication that many people, like even like British generals and stuff, would have subscriptions to. Strange thing about this fellow, he was a mystic. Even though he's writing about history and science and all this stuff, he uses this whole mystic idea and he doesn't necessarily write about occultism, but it's sort of part of his belief set. Um, he says on many occasions that there needs to be a Teutonic religion in Germany to replace Christianity, and that he would welcome anyone that would do such a thing. He also said, he was also a sworn anti-Semite, just like List, he says uh, any, something like any mystic is a natural anti-Semite, or something like that. It's very... This, I mean, I don't know, it's just this strange blend of, like, racial ideas and occultism that, uh, well, I mean, it's just an interesting mix, and it has horrible, horrible results. So, did you want to make any comments on Chamberlain before I move uh, on? Just a little bit. That, that is that um, he was a proponent of an Aryan Jesus, claiming that Jesus was not Jewish. Even though Christianity is a Judaic religion and should thus be shunned, Jesus himself was Aryan. White Jesus. White Jesus. Yes, yes. We still have this. We still have this nagging belief, I think, in the United States yeah. of the white Jesus. Right. So, uh, yeah. And so, speaking of Jesus, let's talk about an ex-monk, an ex-Cistercian monk, who had a big influence. We'll we'll look at him like the other grandfather, of or the other occult grandfather of of Nazism. So, let, let me, Joe. You make a good point. There. Let me go back over some of these names again. So we've had Helena Blavatsky, we've talked about her. She was the Russian mystic from the mid-19th century who founded the Theosophical Society. Her ideas were picked up by Guido von Liszt, the German mystic and prophet of the Aryan Superman. Okay, Houston Stuart Chamberlain lent his ideas to the mix too, but in a more scientific and historical way with his book Foundations of the 19th Century. He was an Englishman. By the way, he was married to Wagner's daughter. Okay. <laughs> and, and oddly enough, he ended up writing wartime essays against Britain when uh, Germany and Britain got into it. Interesting. So, moving on to our next, <laughs> in, in a long series of names you're going to hear tonight, Jörg Lantz, also known as Josef Lantz von Liebenfels. Uh, sometimes he called himself. He was an occult figure, occultist, in, uh, who was based out of Vienna in the early 1900s, 1905 to 1910 were sort of his high watermarks. Um, he is an ex-Cistercian monk. Strangely enough, a lot of Cistercian monks, for whatever reason, end up becoming heretics or magicians or whatever. Giordano Bruno, for example, was one of these folks. Uh, also, St. Bernard was the original Cistercian monk who sort of preached the crusade. So it's funny how heretics and crusaders both come out of this order. So that's where Jorg Lanz comes from. He's this ex-Cistercian monk, actually respected Bible scholar in Germany. 
and um, he takes the ideas that I was just talking about of eugenics, scientific racial hygiene, and he combines that with the ideas of Guido von List, of these root races, of this coming Aryan messiah, savior of the Armanen shaft, the knightly Teutonic order. He combines both of these ideas together into what he calls theozoology. That's a total 19th century pseudoscience word, if I've ever heard one. But uh, his idea was that you had to use scientific eugenics to help breed the coming race of Aryan Superman or to purify the blood of the coming Aryan Superman or whatever. So, um, Can I just read this? Yeah. There's this paragraph uh, from Wikipedia, actually, about uh, Jörg Lanz. So in 1904, he published his book, Theozoology, in which he, this is where it talks about... Um, he was one of the big advocates for, for eugenics, right? So theosiology advocated sterilization of the sick and the lower races, as well as forced labor for uh, castrated shandals and, the glor and glorified the Aryan race as godmen. Lons justified his neo-Gnostic racial ideology by attempting to give it a biblical foundation. According to him, Eve, which he described as initially being divine, involved herself with a demon and gave birth to the lower races in the process. Furthermore, Lons claimed that this led to blonde women being attracted primarily to dark men, <laughs> something that could only be stopped by racial demixing, so that the Aryan Christian master humans could once again rule the dark-skinned beastmen and ultimately achieve divinity. So th that's basically what this guy was about. Right, right. So he not only wrote books, though, he went on to, to found a publication called Ostara, which was uh, a, a famous occult mag of the time I guess it'd be like I don't know if you ever read Aquarius sign of the times or anything like that you know yeah I can imagine a bunch of like if it were today there'd be like a bunch of ads for like hypnotherapists in it you know that's sort of the idea I got of it but this this magazine was widely distributed Astara and it was your glances magazine and it was all and all the articles were about just what we were just talking about racial hygiene you know uh, getting rid of all the uh, the lower mongoloid races, blah blah blah, you know, just all this this stuff and a constant holding up of like ancient Teutonic Knights and Templars and this whole idea of the quest for the Holy Grail. Okay, I think Lands especially, um, of course, fr coming from his background, would have interest in these Grail legends. Okay, well. He like Wagner before him. Uh, we can't real. I don't. We don't have enough time to really talk about Wagner too much tonight. But like the composer Wagner, he saw the Grail as like the symbol of like racial purity, and so a lot of that sort of uh, imagery ends up in his magazine Ostara. He also goes on to found the ONT, the Order of the New Templars, and that's sort of the. Uh, society, secret society that grows up around lands. And they, you know, they're modeling themselves just like the German and Orden people that came out of list. They're modeling themselves as basically the new Armanenschaft, the new priest kings. So what were you saying here? Oh, Lance also founded the Guido von List Society. So it is, you know, just so you want to know how clear the connection between List's ideas and Lance's ideas are. There it goes. He founded the Guido von List Society. So maybe List is like the great-grandfather of the Nazis, and Lanz is like the grandfather. So <clears throat> anyway, 
So where do we get to the Nazis, right? Yeah. Where do we get to the where do where do Nazis come in in all of this? We we're just talking about a bunch of occultists from Germany. Well, one day in 1909, in uh, Jörg Lanz's offices of Ostara in Vienna, he probably owned some sort of small occult bookstore in the same shop location. In walks a young Viennan, uh, a young uh, Austrian painter, who's sort of down on his luck and you know, is looking for back issues of the star. Well, that young painter was Adolf Hitler, 1909. He's, he's coming in. He's, so he's got every issue of this occult magazine, okay, that's all talking about, you know, Aryan priest kings destroying lower races, Aryan pure-blooded supermen and all this stuff. So there it is right there. You want to talk about Nazi occultism. Right there, there's your first giant connection. You've got Hitler coming into this guy's bookstore, talking to him, asking for back issues of his magazine before he was ever famous, before he ever had any sort of major political ideology that he was preaching to anyone. He was a nobody at this time. So, uh, very funny how things sort of work out that way. And let's see, we'll, we'll boomerang back around on some of this later. Let's talk more about sort of what happened to Hitler. You know, he's obviously got an occult interest in this early phase of his life. He's kicking around basically a loser in Vienna. And uh, so the First World War comes along five years later, and it's like a rallying cry for, this, for Hitler. It like, gives him a purpose for life, basically. And he welcomed the coming war because he thought, you know, it would be the uh, beginning of the new Aryan utopia. And so did Guido von Liszt, who was still alive at this time. And in his writings, you know, he's hailing the war every day. He's glad the war is happening. Like, these people have no idea what's about to happen. So it's strange how Liszt and Hitler have two different experiences with the First World War. Liszt is an old man, so by the winter of 1917, 1918, he's basically starving to death. And he dies in early 1919. Uh, you know, lives long enough to see his Aryan dream shattered, you know, on the block of the First World War. Hitler has the opposite luck. He, like, joins the German army on the third day of the First World War and is in combat for, like, 46 months. <laughs> you know, he, gets, he ends up getting the Iron Cross, like the highest decoration that a person of his rank could even get, and uh, never gets promoted up to officer or anything like that, but... Funny luck the guy had, you know what I'm saying? Like he, his job was to run messages back and forth between different trenches or between different units. I mean, um, with British snipers firing at you all the time, like, ugh. So strange luck. Maybe he sold his soul or something. I don't know. If you read that book, Spear of Destiny or whatever, it'll it'll say oh, he sold his soul. <laughs> you know, he had demonic power helping him out. I don't know about that. But it's obvious that he was influenced by certain occult principles. And if you look at the troops surrounding him in the trenches in the First World War, a lot of them have these swastikas on their helmets. And it's not because they're Nazis, because there weren't even Nazis yet. It's because it's a symbol of good luck from all this German occult stuff. And, and many of them will have different other runes uh, on their helmets, on their guns. So List's ideas circulate around the upper class in the early part of the century. And then by the First World War, they go mainstream. Because you've got all these Germans in the trenches, and they need some sort of rationale for why they're dying and dying and dying. So, 
Jay, any comments on the First World War? I feel like I'm, I'm rapping no, no. for too long at, at a stretch tonight. <laughs> I feel like I'm going on for like 10 minutes in a row. So. Well, Raymond, you're, you're like a sponge for this stuff. Like, I, this has been your stu- your thing for years, I know. Right. Like, well, I, I have yeah. done I have done a lot of study on this. We've been planning on yeah. doing this show since the very beginning. Yeah, so yeah. I I boned up. I'll put it to you <laughs> that way on the whole thing before we we came in here tonight. So I'm, f- I'm following you for don't do okay. You want. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So Hitler comes back from the war. Oh, he has this experience of being blinded by right. a gas attack. His religious experience. Yes. Yeah, so he has a yeah. quote unquote religious experience, and I don't know if you remember like. It's sort of like, he's like the anti-Paul. You remember Paul in the Bible, you know, he gets blinded, you know, oh, you know. And he has this intense religious experience, that's what leads him off into his Paulish stuff. Uh, anyway, um, Hitler, same thing. His, 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 his evil politicking begins with this gas attack. He goes blind as he's recovering in the hospital. Germany gives up or, you know, is completely shut down. The government collapses, the war ends. You know, all these soldiers who've been fighting so long in the trenches are like, what just happened? Because Russia had had gone down a year before. They're like, huh, we're on one front now. We're going to win, you know. And uh, they had had big battles that they had won earlier in the year. It didn't matter. General strikes shut everything down. And suddenly you have all these veterans, these hardcore military guys who were fighting for some crazy occult cause in some ways, not all of them. But uh, at least the ones with the, the runes on their helmets, you know. Um, suddenly they're like, they're just left standing there with nothing to do. No pay, no pension, nothing. And to right. top it all off, I mean, if, if, there, if that sense of mythic Teutonic nationalism wasn't there before the war, then certainly the, the end of World War I gave it a chance to take root. Right, right. Because suddenly, oh, here you are presented with, you know, all of these outside other... Uh, races and people suddenly influencing you and you're starving and you don't want to blame it on yourself of course because you got into a huge war and invaded France you got to blame it on somebody else so that's exactly what happened and that left the door open and so in the years following World War One, the um, these gangs of like right-wing paramilitary ex-veteran thug types start mixing with these Aryan-loving occultists. And uh, you may have heard of the Thule Society before. Well, uh, Hitler goes to Munich after the World War I ends, and there also in Munich is the Thule Society, which is an occult order, occult lodge. You know, it's founded on the principles of your, people like Jörg Glantz and Guido von List working for the you know, German aristocratic Aryan future, whatever, they decide that they're going to create a political arm to their uh, occult lodge, and they call it the German Workers' Party. Okay, well, Hitler's working for the army at the time, and working as a spy, he goes in and he spies on, like, communist groups in the city for the army, and he, you know, goes back and tells them where they're meeting, and they bust them up. Well, (laughs) it was called the German Workers' Party, so he's thinking... Oh, this is going to be some left-wing group. I got to go infiltrate these guys. So he goes to the meeting, and he finds out that he like agrees with everything they're saying because I mean, obviously he'd been reading Ostara. He's got the same influences, and he goes from infiltrating the group to like within a few months leading the group. And all of these Thule Society members, all of these occultists in Munich, are propping him up 
and hooking him up with connections, introducing him to people, and introducing him to people as the Aryan Messiah or whatever. Like it, it's like immediately apparent to these people. Oh, we've got our man now. Like this guy's got a certain whatever it was that he had, you know, demonic flair <laughs> or whatever. That thousand, I guess, four years in the trenches of World War One would probably make you pretty intense. Just a, so. just a bit about the Fool Society. They believed that. Um, there was some lost landmass in the far north that uh, Aryans descended from, and Hyperboreans, I guess. Um, but basically, it's uh, this extreme uh, northern landmass near Iceland or Greenland, and it basically is sort of the Teutonic Atlantis in some ways, right? This is where the Aryan race came from, basically. And this is what the Thule Society believes. So this is sort of where we see... Um, as Raymond was saying, like the mixing of this, these, uh, this, this, uh, this occultism with this um, post-war nationalism, right? Because the Thule Society is where the German Workers' Party comes from. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And let's talk about a few Im influential members of this Munich circle because they are key people in sort of sending Hitler on his way towards power. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is Alfred Rosenberg. Um, Alfred Rosenberg, he dies uh, because they hang him at Nuremberg. <laughs> so he's with Hitler all the way from like 1920 on. And he was already a student, not a student, but like a person who studied deeply the, work, the works of Houston Stuart Chamberlain, who we were talking about earlier. The guy that believed there should be a new Teutonic religion and that there should be a Teutonic Messiah, whatever. So uh, he of course latches on to Hitler in this setting Rosenberg is also a mystic. He would speak at different Thule Society meetings, but I don't know if he was actually a member. But he's certainly part of the circle. What's most interesting about Rosenberg is that he, using the, the newspaper of the Thule Society, prints the protocols of the elders of Zion. And this, uh, I think, we've had some interesting posts on our forums lately about this document. A lot of people have written about it. A lot of people are interested in what are these protocols of the elders of Zion? Joe, do you want to you want to talk about this a little bit? Just a, just a quick note. It's it's interesting where the protocols pop up. And first of all, it's it's a hoax document akin to um, the Iron Mountain report, for instance, that we talked about. Except older. Um, I'm not sure the exact origins or what they know. I think it was created by the uh, Russian secret police um, as an excuse to start a pogrom or something. Yeah. So. It, it, the basic idea is that. The Jews are taking or control the world and are you know right. taking it over. Right. This this so. document is is the alleged minutes of the 1896 World Conference of Jewry, <laughs> in which all of all of the high-ranking Jews from all over the world come right. together and extrapolate their master plan uh, with somebody writing it all down. By the way, right. you know, right. so you have a document uh, of how they're going to take everything over. And it's you know it's not unlike uh, if you read like. Um, Adam Weishaupt and like his writings about the Illuminati and how we're going to be all secret and infiltrate governments. It's not, it's, it's not unlike that. It's obviously a forgery since uh, I can't really see there being a world conference of Jewry. I mean, <laughs> right. Who knows? Yeah. The, th the thing of it is that this, this document is still around. I, s I actually saw it uh, the other day on Usenet, oddly enough. Like on the, there's like a cognitive science uh, news group and someone decided to post all of the chapters of the protocols as separate as separate postings in a cognitive science group 
which is a very odd thing to do. So it's there's still people who push the protocols as, some, as like a real document that we have to be, you know, be aware of and act on. And so it's. And then some people, of course, uh, be, like use it, but they don't connect it with Jews. They think that that was a, a veneer that was put over it, that it was that it's really an outline of the Freemasonic plan or whatever to take over the world. It's pr- it, it, it has a purpose. It's just like, like you were saying. It's like the Iron Mountain Report. It's written with a purpose to sway your opinion in a certain way. It has no literal truth in and of itself. So, But it, of course lays out this case that the Jews are trying to destroy the European culture and the Germanic culture and all this crap. And people eat it up. People will believe what they want to believe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So Rosenberg prints this in the Thule's newspaper and so that's where the protocols sort of come into this whole thing. Right? Well, we're, we may do a whole show about them tracing their history. We should. We should. We should. Another person in this Munich circle. Are we, are we done talking about Rosenberg? Would you like to mention anything else about Rosenberg? Just that he was uh, considered the Nazi the um, Nazi Party's chief racial theorist. So I mean, the race thing was uh, it was in his lap, and he wasn't in, he had no real scientific training. He wasn't like an anthropologist, someone who might study something like race or human beings or something of that sort. So he based his ideas more on some, you know, the philosophies of the people that we've been talking about as opposed to any real studies like or, or science in any way. And he was a mystic. Yeah. So yeah. Can't, couldn't be too much of a scientist if he's doing the mystic thing, I would say. So other people in this Munich circle around the Thule Society and around the young, recently discharged from the army, Hitler, are Dietrich Eckhart. Dietrich Eckhart was the founder or one of the founders of the Thule Society. And he immediately latched onto Hitler, just like Rosenberg did, as this, uh, he's our man. You know what I'm saying? Like, Eckhart immediately realized that. And he was the one who first introduced the the Nazi party and Hitler to uh, influential industrialists, people that had enough money to fund the cause, people that were from classes that Hitler would never have access to due to his background. So Dietrich Eckhart's like the, he's like your connection, you know what I'm saying? And, and he's hardcore Thule, like he's founder of the society. He introduces Hitler to Rudolf Hess, who we're going to talk a lot about tonight. And uh, Hess, I, well I've got it written down on my outline here, Hess is Hitler's original groupie. Um, Hess really believed in this Aryan messiah, this Aryan millennium thing, and he latched onto Hitler as the man to do it, and he was heavily interested and influenced by astrology and astrological charts. We'll come back around to that later. One last thing I'd like to mention about Thule. Least you think that they were just some Masonic lodge with a darker racial twist. No. They acted in the world, okay? They actively plotted against communist and socialist groups in Munich and murdered people and did all sorts of other horrible, droogish types of things. And when, for a brief time, communists took over in Munich, the only people that they rounded up and shot, the only people that they executed when they took power, were members of the Thule Society. So uh, they were kind of like occult racist terrorists in a small kind of way. 
But they they're the they're the connection. They're like a gang. They're like a, gang. They're like a cult gang. They're the they're the connection. They create the Nazi party. They give Hitler his connections, and that's where Hitler first interfaces with the whole idea uh, in a political form. And also, uh, that's in fact where Hitler literally gets trained to be a politician, to be a public speaker. He gets trained by a, a drama coach, and if you've ever seen any of Hitler's speeches, it's obvious that I mean that he has this dramatic flair. He gesticulates, you know. He, his voice modulation, it's all, it's all a show, it's a performance. And Hitler picks this up, in fact, um, from the people that he meets uh, through Eckhart and in the Thule Society. So, so and we, what we have to remember is these people are all just so heavily influenced by religious ideas. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily a political philosophy like it, it's a religious philosophy that then sort of spirals, oh, well, now we need a political arm, and, oh, there are the Nazis. Look at that. We need a political arm. That, I mean, think about that. The moment that the occultists decided that they needed a political arm, the Nazi party was born. Boom. Well, in fact, I mean, Hitler, of, of the inner circle of Nazis, Hitler wasn't even, like, the most into occultism. You know, no. for Hitler, who's this obvious megalomaniac he sees an opening you know right. he he's dabbled in occultism and he you know he's hanging out with the full society people they want to start a political arm you know that ends up being a nazi party well who's there to to take you know take the helm you know who's going to do it we've got this guy hitler you know he's interested in the occult stuff but he's really interested in the political stuff and man this guy can talk and he hates some Jews. And he hates some Jews. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, and I'll, I guess we'll, we're going to go to a break here in just a minute, but I'll, I'll close this segment, which is sort of the pre-Nazi power history. Like, in the second segment tonight, we're going to get to what happened after the Nazis came to power and how all of this stuff we were talking about sort of came to fruition in a really odd way that people forget too much. Anyway... Hitler said, The old beliefs will be brought back to honor again. The whole secret knowledge of nature, of the divine, of the shapeless, the demonic. We will wash off the Christian veneer and bring out a religion peculiar to our race. You're listening to Out There with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Out There Radio. My name is Joe McFall, and I'm here with my co-host, G. Raymond Wiley. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, the the anti G. Gordon Liddy. So, <laughs> anyway, I, I hope you guys are enjoying our show tonight. Um, I'm I'm in like soliloquy land here, though. So, Joe, you got to just push me out of the way. Just I'm doing push my me part, out man. of the way. I'm doing my part. Okay. So, it, over the break, actually, we were talking a little bit about uh, the idea that uh, National Socialism was, in many ways, its own religion. Right. It's something that, um, I mean, they had their own holidays, they created their own rituals, like they, they rejected the more recent traditions of Christianity in Germany at the time in favor of this, you know, as we talked about for throughout the whole first part, in favor of this Teutonic mythos of uh, the Superman Aryan race that, uh, and, they, and Austin actually made a good point, because I, I had said something um, uh, earlier in the show about how uh, in many ways, this the emergence of this this uh, 
occultism was a nostalgia looking back. But really, what the Nazis were doing were cre they were creating the Thousand Year Reich. They were looking forward. They it were, was right. yeah. That's what they were saw themselves as attempting to do. And 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 one thing we should point out uh, about this ancient Aryan race that they kept talking about, they believed that these ancient Aryans had like telepathic power, like that they had some sort of magical power that was a natural. Uh, sort of trait because of their Aryan purity, whatever. And that actually goes back, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Blavatsky believed that the Aryans had uh, these sort of... Yeah. So they were looking forward to this utopian future, this thousand-year religion, where they reclaimed their psychic powers. So fantasy is the word for it. Utter and complete fantasy. So one of the things that when we were researching for this uh, occult Nazis show, the whole idea of the blood flag, I had never known about the blood flag. Like the blood flag is this. Uh, if you if you listeners don't really know what this, what the deal is, the blood flag um, was a blood a blood soaked banner from the beer hall push of what was it 19, 1923. So uh, a, a few dozen. Um, a few dozen people, I believe from, it was from the German Workers' Party, were killed at this beer hall push. Right, right, yeah. Hitler and some of his paramilitary buddies some, and some other groups got together and they uh, all, you know, got their stormtrooper dudes together and they went down to where the Bavarian government was meeting in this beer hall, like all the high officials, and they attempted this coup where they were going to capture them all. And Hitler was going to ride down the street proclaiming himself the new ruler of Bavaria and all this stuff, but you know, they only had like 150 guys right, or something right. like that. So the Munich police shot a bunch of them or the army shot a bunch of them. And they were the original 16 martyrs to the Nazi cause. And Hitler ended up spending uh, like a year or so in prison for this. Right, right? because he ran away like a baby <laughs> right, right. that day. So. Well, ev evidently uh, this, this big swastika banner um, that was soaked in blood at the beer hall putsch was um was saved and passed around a little while and then finally made it back into the hands of the nazis and thereafter every nazi flag had to be consecrated almost always by hitler so you you, you see videos of um you know long lines of uh of soldiers holding these banners uh, walking by hitler where hitler each one like he touches it to the to the blood the blood flag which, and I was wondering, where is this thing? So, I, I found it. It's in, it's in my basement. Yeah, I found <laughs> it. I, I found it in this trailer out in the, on the other side of town. I gave it to Raymond. It's in his basement now. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's got, uh, like, a picture of Robert E. Lee on it now and that some redneck added. And, and Jimmy Page. It's like a caricature of Jimmy Page. Right, I don't know. Right, right. But it is, it is the real blood flag. It is the That's real right. blood flag. It's the real That's blood right. flag. That's right. So I bet, we could get, I bet we could get loads of cash for the blood flag on eBay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to make money That's right. For the show. You know, you saw American Beauty, right? Like, I had right. the Nazi play. I bet he paid like a grand for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, how much can I pay for the blood flag, man? Exactly. I got it. Exactly. I got it. It's priceless <laughs> in that evil Nazi kind of way. So let's, let's get. What are we talking about? Let's get back to some well, of this okay, stuff. Okay. Well, let's get. Yeah. Let's skip ahead a few years yeah, because yeah. I mean, uh, there's no use in me going through the history of how the Nazis came to power. The point is, is they, you know, they goose stepped their way to power, and. Damn democratic elections. That's right. They won some democratic <laughs> elections, and yeah. 
So by 1933, you know, they are the undisputed rulers in Germany, and they really go right into their platform as soon as they get into power. They immediately start instituting all these race laws about who can marry who, who can have sex with who, and it's all based on purifying their Aryan blood and purifying the German stock and all this stuff. There's a huge plank of their platform was the idea of Lebensstrom, of living space. The idea that it was sort of the German manifest destiny to conquer and farm the lands to the east of them. Russia. Russia, exactly. Yeah. Russia, Poland, exactly. So I think in, in the most hardcore of the Nazis from day one, the idea of invading Russia was there. It was it's the end result of what you're going to do. It's sort of the whole point. And not, and not just taking their land, but exterminating and or enslaving their people as well. The word they use is depopulation. <laughs> depopulation. So, this idea is kicked around a lot. And uh, there was this whole Barbarossa myth from, from the, this supposed Teutonic heritage and the idea that one day the ancient German king Barbarossa would come up and rise up from his mountain and, and conquer the lands to the east. Well, we'll get back to Barbarossa later. But that's just one one example. Um, but uh, pound for pound, the, the most occultism in the German state at this time was concentrated in the group known as the SS. I'm sure everybody's heard of the SS, the black-clad stormtrooper, Hitler bodyguard types. Yeah, they have the death's head, the skull and crossbones on their hats. I'm sure you've seen these people in movies. They were led by one Heinrich Himmler, who was sort of a new age hippie at first. He, uh, I had he had, a, I had, a yeah. weird, I had a weird revelation earlier, looking at okay. pictures of Himmler. Do I, now, do I look like Himmler? I just want to know. Tell me. So I, I just, I just, I, I'm asking this, I looked at pictures, I'm like, that kind of looks like my dad. That kind of looks like me. Without the beard, I don't know. Austin, do I look like Himmler? No? Joe... <laughs> Joe's holding a picture <laughs> of himself next to Himmler? No, I'm Little sorry. round glasses? I think it's the weak chin. Joe, no. you, don't, you don't look like Himmler. <laughs> okay, thank okay. you. Thank you. It, okay. it was bothering me earlier. Okay, sorry. Guys. So do you want to go out and like live on the land <laughs> like Himmler did? I've thought about it. He, I've thought about H- it. Himmler was a part of this whole German New Agey movement of the late 19th in early 20th century is called Lebensreform, life reform. The idea was is to reject, once again, reject the Industrial Revolution, go back on the land. The peasant on his farm is the key element of the state and of the nation. And that's the way he looked at it. And so he wasn't really a career military man so much as he was uh, an ideologue. And he, by the time, let's see, when did he become, he took part in the Beer Hall Putsch. So he'd been around with them for a while, but it was a, I think it was a few years before he actually became the head of the SS. The SS just started off as Hitler's personal bodyguard because he felt like he couldn't, he couldn't trust all the brown-shirted thugs that were helping him out. He wanted a more selective group. And they originally distinguished themselves by wearing black caps with death's head emblems on them. And uh, but by the end, by the time Himmler got a hold of them, or got done with them, they looked more like, oh, I don't know, like the Black Knights, you know, like the um, the evil Templars. I don't know what the best way to put it is, yeah. but 
he built, he turned them into this sort of knightly order because he had this completely nostalgic, like we were talking about, view of the ancient Teutonic Knights. He thought that he was a reincarnation of the ancient German king Heydrich from the 10th century. Himmler, to me, is easily the weirdest of this whole Nazi inner circle because he's the one who, um, I think, tries to push the occult thing farther than anyone else, even farther than Hitler. He ends up being in charge of uh, the extermination of the Jews, for instance, as well as uh, a lot of the more occult kind of activities within the party. Exactly. So um, the SS, very selective about who they take into their group, and Himmler sort of sets down all these rules about you have to be so tall and you have to, you had to like prove your German ancestry back to 1750. And what he basically was trying to do was to build a new racial stock for the, for the empire, for the country. And he felt that all the leaders were going to come out of, of his group. And he, in, in fact, encouraged uh, polygamy. He encouraged um, breeding a lot of babies, basically demographic warfare, to the point where they, they had this Lebensborn program that they ran where they basically farmed children. I mean, for lack of a better term, they would find unwed women, uh, old maids, for lack of a better term, who, who hadn't been able to get married for one reason or another, and they would hook them up with some random SS guy just so they could have some blonde-headed babies. And then they'd have like these whole nurseries full of these kids. I mean, like seriously, twenty or thirty thousand of these kids, just from this program, bred specifically for this program as the new Aryan stock with the new pure blood and all that crap. But it went farther than that. Like by the time the war started, uh, they were abducting Aryan-looking children from their homes, taking them away from their parents, and shipping them off and putting them in a foster home with an SS family. And uh, like 200,000 children, yeah, stolen, yeah, because they had blonde hair and blue eyes. Just from France, from uh, the Netherlands, from Poland, a bunch of different places. So uh, they also were the ones who were pushing along the forced sterilization programs that were going on. I mean, what, what you saw in America at the turn of the century with the sterilization of people was nothing compared to what the Nazis were doing once they came into power. And the SS is sort of pushing all this along. The SS are also, they have a group called the Race and Resettlement Bureau, which controls all these uh, marriage laws and such, but also is sort of planning for the future conquest of the East. And in, and in Himmler's ideology, once the East was conquered, once Russia was conquered, he was just going to take these SS officers and set them down as like uh, as large landowners with these giant Russian estates, and they were going to move these Lebensborn babies and these you know these new Aryan supermen, whatever, into the area as the farmers, and they were just going to completely displace or murder everybody that was there. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Uh, SS is symbol, of course, the double Sieg rune, going back to von Liszt and his use of runes for power and different symbols. The SS men had a different gravestone. They didn't have a cross on their gravestones. They had the, I don't know what the name of the rune is. It's, it's like a Y yeah. with an extra leg coming up out of the top of it. They, separate, they celebrated different holidays. I mean, 
they were made to leave the ch any churches that they were they belonged to once they joined. They swore horrible oaths. Yeah, and Hitler and Himmler had this like castle, a Vettelsberg, that apparently a bunch of occult rituals would go on in. He would meet with his most inner circle there, and and this round room with all these deuses on it, lit but like a cauldron. I mean, seriously, I'm not not making this crap up. Yeah. Like that castle's still there. The emblem of the black sun, the occult symbol, still sits there on the marble floor. This day you can go visit if you really want to. So was it true, Raymond, that um, that they believed that, and I've, I've heard this before, in fact, that there was, in fact, uh, a black sun inside the hollow earth that was like a black dead sun, and that's sort of where the Aryans ultimately came from? Man, that statement, Joe, was so loaded right there. I, some of them, yes, believed yeah. in the hollow earth theory. Right. Some of them believed that there was a dead black sun that used to sit somewhere out in the solar system. Okay. You yeah, know, yeah. I mean, they also believed in Lumerians and Atlanteans. Right. So, I right. mean, you know, we see where this is sort of going. Now, I read in Umberto Eco's book, Foucault's Pendulum, and this, I don't know where he got this piece of information. It wasn't cited, of course, it was a novel. But he made the claim that uh, some of the Nazi scientists who were working on the V1 and V2 rockets, like, misaimed the rockets because they were basing the curvature of the Earth as being convex and right. not concave I mean perhaps thinking that they were inside, inside the, the hollow earth right yeah. right so that's an episode by itself right. too yeah. the hollow earth well let's, we still got we still got a good amount of time left, let's so. let's talk a little bit about Raymond rather I don't know how much we want to continue with the details of history but can we talk maybe a little bit about I mean, this show has sort of been about how this happens, right? But but really, I think that we, there's a lot more we can say about it. We've talked about the details of how it happened in this particular case. But more generally speaking, what we're talking about, it seems to me, is given the right circumstances, these th this, this uh, deep or deeply held religious or spiritual or mystical beliefs paired with... Uh, extreme nationalism can cause something like this to happen. I mean, is that kind of what we're saying here? I mean, is, is this a, a, a general statement or something that's just specific? It happened once in human history, it can't happen again. Oh, absolutely not. I don't think it's a one-shot deal at all. And it doesn't just have to be nationalism. It's, it, it's just any sort of us-and-them mentality combined with the idea of religious ascendance that there are certain people who are more religiously, racially, physically fit than others, okay? And it comes from, I think, a devaluation of yourself at the onset. Like, you feel like you're not worth anything and you need something to give you more um, of a purpose, of a meaning in life. And if that, and if that means subjecting yourself or submitting yourself to the needs of the nation, the state, the race to feel that, then you'll do it. Especially if you're starving mm -hmm. in the post-war post-war Germany and you know, you're you're not even you're wondering if you're going to get to tomorrow, you're going to live or if you're going to be able to feed your kids. Sure you're going to be looking for the Aryan utopia. Sure the thousand-year Reich sounds really good to you. Because what right. else? What other option is there right. at that point, really? Exactly. You, know, you're, you you've just come out of a great war. You probably have family who family who've died. 
you know, you're starving, your family's starving, your neighbors are starving. Um, there's no real hope for you. And then someone comes along with this idea that no, you are a superhuman. You know, you can be part of what we are building, this thousand year Reich, this uh, heaven on earth, this utopia. Um, you can be a part of it. Here, here's some here's some myths that um, make you feel like that your ethnicity means something in the face of uh, this horrible defeat after World War One. You know, here's a way that we can take back what belongs to us, which is our birthright. Uh, here's a way where we can feed our people. Here's a way where we can um, live in live in a utopia, and it sounds really good to people. Right. But uh, but I'll go so far as to say this, Joe. I don't think it has to. It has to go to the point where it's that bad, for you to get this result. I, I read a really interesting article a couple of weeks ago about um, suburban despair. That's what they call it, suburban despair, and how it leads to. I mean, how and how you find the most fundamentalist of churches and the most whacked out of religious nuts. I'm not talking just about Christians here, don't get me wrong, okay? Uh, you find that in the suburbs because people are trapped in a way, in a way, in the same way, I guess you're trapped if you're trapped on the farm. You know, maybe there's more people around, but you're not really interacting with them and you're just sort of stuck at home or stuck at school or stuck at, j at the job or stuck in the car. So I think suburban despair could be an in, 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 into, uh, it could be an ingredient in, the, in a new cocktail of religious and racial hatred I think if something like that would happen in this country well in many ways I mean that's part of the situation that was going on in Germany at the time as well I mean we're talking about um, you know the, f the first industrial cities in Europe you know after, after I guess starting in the late 1800s but really solidifying um, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, where we have the factories, we have the, the factory workers, we have all of these different ideologies and competition. Um, and, and I could imagine, well, I obviously can't imagine, but, um, you know, being someone in an urban center in Germany around that time, and I'm sure they feel stuck in very much the same way. That suburban despair was uh, probably very much like an urban despair at the time, which I'm sure you see a lot of that now as well, too. But. Right, and it left them looking for all these occult societies yeah. and, and lodges and such like that. But all of that changed once the war started and once Hitler really solidified his power. Suddenly the occult became the bad guy even to the Nazis. And this is the next thing I want to get into yeah, here yeah. is that... Uh, you know, it isn't just us here in hindsight that noticed that the Nazis seemed a little too obsessed with the occult. The British picked up on it, and uh, it led to some crazy stuff happening. So we were talking about Rudolf Hess earlier, Hitler's original groupie, okay? He was highly into astrology, right? It was uh, 1941. Uh, he wanted to end the war with or he wanted to settle with England so they could fight the Russians more effectively. And based on an, astrolo an astrological chart that was cast for him and a mystical friend of his, is a mystic, a friend of his who was a mystic, <laughs> a dream that he had, Carl Haushofer was the fellow's name, uh, based on a mystic dream and a <laughs> astrological chart, he decided that he would try to go and negotiate with the British in Britain 
And so he got on a plane and flew over to Britain. And, of course, the RAF shot his ass down. And he had to bail out. And, uh, you know, he lands in this field in Scotland, and he's asking for some duke or whatever that he was going to try to get in touch with when he got there. <laughs> they, just, they just took him in. They captured him. But, okay, the reason that we know that it was this astrological chart and uh, this um, dream story, okay, that, that sent him over there is because he writes a letter to his mother from jail in Britain. Okay, and he says, I want you to find the document where I wrote down what uh, Carl Haushofer's dream was and where I wrote down what my astrological chart was, and I want you to get them notarized. <laughs> okay, he writes his mother and tells his mother to do this. So apparently, like, it was pretty clear to everybody that he had sort of gone off the deep end and taken his astrologer's advice a little too much and got himself captured trying to make peace with the British. And, um,. <laughs> so like four of, I mean this guy is like one of Hitler's best friends like in a in not just a colleague or a work partner they were like friends and had been for a long time so this really dismayed Hitler to the point where he had all the astrologers in Germany arrested like five days later they all got rounded up arrested all the palm readers you know occultists whatever all the occult lodges suddenly get shut down okay well and people were executed, people were thrown in jail, whatever, unless they were working for Himmler. <laughs> unless they were some of Himmler's astrologers, and then they got let off, of course. But So that was, except for the SS activity, that was sort of the end of occultism in Nazi Germany after this whole Hess incident happened. And, uh, yeah, arrested all of the astrologers. How bizarre is that? But get this, the SS course still obsessed with the occult even though we're supposed to be against it now um, whenever they would go into a lodge and shut it down they would steal their library so the SS collected all of the libraries from all of the like Masonic lodges <laughs> in Germany basically and all pile all that information up together so they were good about collecting data <laughs> Dan, okay you guys if you, if you you know you're familiar with the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code stuff the Ren Le Chateau Holy Blood Holy Grail stuff the SS actually sent people to Ren to Montségur, Ren le Chateau, southern France, to look for the Holy Grail. So, I mean, they were onto the whole Holy Blood, Holy Grail story long before Dan Brown was. So, <laughs> in fact, Dan Brown was directly inspired by Nazis. Yes, yeah, yes, exactly, well. exactly. <laughs> Publishing Nazis. So. Oh, we are running out of time, actually. Do you want to wrap things up, Raymond? We need to, oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we need to wrap up with some Nostradamus because uh, that's, that's sort of the final note on this. Is uh, the, the British got wise to the fact that the uh, Germans were a little too into the occult, and they started fighting back. What, what happened was a whole campaign of what they called black propaganda. You hear, if you hear the term black propaganda, it's referring to occult and mystic propaganda. Forged documents forged, uh, in this case, forged Nostradamus prophecies, quatrains. Both the British and the Germans forged uh, Nostradamus prophecies that would, um, <laughs> that would basically like, try to demoralize the other side. They dropped like, thousands of these on towns in France or in Germany or wherever. Pretty interesting stuff, really. Both Goebbels and the people in the UK were using this stuff. The, in the UK... The OSS went so far, I think it's called the OSS, MI6, whatever. Um, 
the British Secret Service went so far as to create fake uh, versions of the leading astrological magazine in Germany, Zenit, and like whole editions of Zenit that were faked. Okay, and the whole point would be to sort of demoralize the reader to say, hey, watch out, bad things are on the horizon. So I thought that was very interesting that they went to went to that, to that length. I think it shows that, that there was like a, more of an understanding of the occult history of Nazism even in Britain at the time than it seems like there is now. Well, at least what what people acknowledge. Because as we said at the beginning of the show, some people are like, oh, there's you know it's rumors and it's just kind of circumstantial. But hopefully we've shown that it's really not. That there is a sort of deep, deep mythical root. Uh, occult route to to the emergence of Nazism in Germany. Right, and you can follow that right up a family tree of people that really existed, and you can read read their writings or read uh, wonderful English and and uh, English speaking authors who have been nice enough to translate and make praises of their writings, sort of get the idea. But um, yeah, occult propaganda, uh, you know, Aryan supermen. I mean. It's Eugenics, yeah. crazy, crazy, crazy. So, if you like our show, send us an email outthereradio at gmail dot com. That's right, or you can uh, visit our website outthereradio dot net, um, or you can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Check us out in the iTunes directory; that does help us out quite write a bit. Write us a review. Yes, write us a review, good or bad, good or bad. Um, let's see, is there anything else? Uh, thank you to Paranoia Magazine. Read it. Yes, thank you to Chris LaCour's Illuminati Rex. Read it. Wonderful comic book series. And uh, that's going to do it for us this week on Out There. My name is Raymond Wiley. And I'm Joe McFall. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com